I've chosen to share uh, the opportunity I've been given to uh, deliver a lesson um, by highlighting that which we have, uh, we have been doing for the last few weeks and will continue to do the rest of the summer on our Wednesday nights. I've chosen to highlight the, the reason for the topic of the study of the book of Acts. The um, titles of our uh, Wednesday night series actually are, are not mine. They come from a book by Dr. Scott Gleaves. He wrote a little book published by 20th Century Christian that uh, highlights the book of Acts. And, uh, and so you'll find these themes uh, that we've been assigning to our speakers. I think Brother Messingale is here Wednesday night. So please come. Please bring uh, someone with you. And please be uh, excited and proud that we are studying the book of Acts. You see, there's a treasure within. Um, the book of Acts is not studied that much these days. As much as the numbers that are thrown to us are two billion people that are call themselves generically Christians, uh, the majority are uh, woefully ignorant of the uh, book of Acts. Ignorance comes sometimes by accident and sometimes intentionally. And I would suggest to you that some of the ignorance, if not a lot of it, of the book of Acts in these days, in our early 21st century, are intentional. You see, there are a lot of churches in the denominational world that do not organize themselves the way that the churches in the first century did. There are churches today that are um, not worshiping the way the first century did. And the more you get away from the way that the first century did it, the less you want to study the book of Acts, the less you want to quote it, the less you want to go to it, and the less all it takes is one generation not to emphasize and not to teach the importance of this book. And suddenly, you've got a tragic generation that thinks they don't have anything there in that book that lies between the Gospels and the letters. The book of Acts is there for a purpose. It's there by inspiration. It's there for a reason. It's a treasure within. And it details 30, 32 years of the most amazing history in the history of mankind. I don't know that I can recommend much to watch on TV these days. How about you? <laughs> I've got direct TV. This is not an advertisement for them. <laughs> I don't know how many channels I've got now, but I think it's over 200. What the paradox that lies there is that the more you have, the less you can watch, right? Because you go, no, can't, no, 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 and you flip. And like a maniac, you flip through, <laughs> going, no, 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 no. You're looking for the yes. You're looking for the yes. You know. One other thing I found out is that when you start sharing with each other, you know, what shows your watch, you, 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 you get your age. You are defined. Your age is immediately known by the shows that you watch. Is that true? Nod your heads. <laughs> so if I tell you that I've recently started watching American Pickers, what do you think of me? He's old. <laughs> yeah, I keep hoping that in my garage I'll find something that I want to sell to those guys. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to. I like that. That's all right. I think I've got a little tractor out back that I want to sell them if it come around to Montgomery, Alabama. Do you know this one? Antiques Roadshow? It's on, the other one was on History Channel. This is on uh, PBS. It's in British. You know, you got these people that speak British English and they go from castle to manor to, to the English countryside. Um, do you like England? Even if you've never been there? Do you like their accent? I do. 
I, I really like that accent. And I, and I love... Um, I love the anticipation, the expectation when they have not had it appraised, the thing that they brought to the experts, these people from Sotheby's or great auction houses and historians of furniture and ceramics and pottery and jewelry and paintings. And, they, and, and, and you can just go, okay, they're either going to find out it's worth nothing or they're going to find out that it's worth what? Did he say six figures? You could just see the faces of the people just go, huh? And it was sitting there in my garage. You know, it's kind of like uh, Brother Gene when he brought me that uh, parchment that he found in North Dakota in a locker. And we found out that it was a 15th century piece of paper parchment from, from uh, Spain or Italy. And uh, it's, a, it's a chant. It's five centuries old and it's one page. And by the way, I'm not going to tell him how much it's worth, Brother Gene, <laughs> but it's worth a lot of money. And it was just there rolled up in a, in a locker in a military base in North Dakota. Wow, yeah. Treasures within. Um, I walked by all my grown-up years. My dad used to, uh, with a little extra money that we have, he liked clocks. Clocks, you know, like uh, the ones with chimes and bells and... And so, uh, not cuckoo clocks. I can't stand cuckoo clocks. They drive me crazy. But uh, there's one, and I remember him saying a French word, something about the mechanism. And, and uh, now, as an adult, I realize, you know, that clock is from the 18th century, and it's all made out of one piece of sculpted wood. And I'm guessing that that is the treasure within my dad's house. He has never had it appraised that I know of, and uh, I'm never going to sell it if I get it, because it belonged to my father. But you walk by it every day. You walk by it every day. You've got it in your Bible every day, and yet you don't realize it's kind of like those people on Antiques Roadshow. They, they've had it in their home. They said it belonged to my grandmother, my mother, and now I've had it in the house, and it's just a little table. And then they put a six-figure test to it, and suddenly, bing, their eyes pop open. Wow, they realize the, the value, the value, the value. The treasure within. We realize the value. We cannot take for granted the book of Acts. We cannot let... The majority around us decide that it's less of value. We must teach it to our children. We must know it ourselves well. We must know its story. The genre of the book of Acts is it's a history book. That turns some people off because it's got names and implies dates and has geography in it and all the things that maybe some of us have learned to dislike. In school, how tragic that history teachers have taught us to dislike history. How tragic. But not this one. You can't not like this one. You can't afford to not like this one. It's the treasure within you, see. It is like the four Gospels. It is the five history books. It is one of the five history books of the New Testament. The four Gospels tell the story of the founder. And the book of Acts tells the story, well, of the teachings of the apostles. The apostolic age and how important was it. Because we went from just a few scattered people to a growing explosive movement. How important is that story? You cannot skip it. You cannot uh, uh, undermine it. 
You cannot not highlight it. You've got to rejoice in it. You've got to spotlight it. You've got to say, that's where I come from. That's my story. It covers approximately from the year 30 A.D., from the moment in which Jesus ascends into heaven, until the year 62 A.D., so about 32 years. The most critical 32 years, you could say in one sense, of the birth of Christianity, when it all began. And it is our story. And it took place in this map. This is a map of the Old Testament world. It's where the majority of the population of the world lived at that time, probably about 80 million people. There were about 6 million Jews, and then there were about 72 million Gentiles as they divided the world into two kinds. And the story of Jesus and the story of the apostles begins way over there in your right-hand corner where you'll find Jerusalem. And the story of the book of Acts will end, but it's not really over. The Last verse of Acts chapter 28, verse 32, will close when you're in Rome, in the capital, in the largest city in the world. You go from Jerusalem to Rome. That's the story of the book of Acts. What the book of Acts is not, it's not a novel. That way of telling a story, of narrating it, has been around for about five centuries. The first novel was Don Quixote by Cervantes, a Spaniard. And uh, it's a great story, but uh, it's fictional. Character is fictional. The geography is real and the places that he travels in and the interesting uh, themes that are brought about in the novel are very much worth discussing and studying in a class of literature or even just by a reader for entertainment. But that's not what the book of Acts is. It's not, it's not there to entertain me and you. It's to instruct us. By the way, It happens to be incredibly entertaining if you will give it your personal time, if I will give it my attention, my undivided attention, if I will not assume that I just have to know this book for a test in college. But I need to know it so that I can know my roots and know where to go from here. You see, it's it's a pattern book. And the reason that people don't want to emphasize it, quote it, and study it today is because they don't want a pattern. They like to do their own thing. But you can't do your own thing. you got to do God's thing. And he told us through the apostles how we should do, and he showed us through the early church how to do things. It's, it's not mythology. It's not a little bit true and the rest is made up. It's all true, 100%. Or it's completely false and it's not worth your time and mine. It's, there, are better, there are better mythologies to be told. But it's not mythology, you see. Christianity claims to be different. Jesus claimed to be different. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That eliminates Muhammad and Buddha and anybody else. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The book of Acts says, I am the story. You don't get alternate versions. That's what it says. And it tells a story of everything that the apostles did and said, just like the Gospels told everything of what Jesus did and said. You see, it's not just a teaching of someone. It's what they lived out. It's what the apostles lived out. And what they lived out matched what they said. The two went together. What it is, it is a very important resource document. That's why we need to know it. We need to emphasize it. We need to teach it. We need to return to it. It is well-researched. 
When you read Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, which is the other volume that the writer of Acts will write, he will say, I, I did my homework. I studied. He is inspired by God, but he also studied. The writer Luke will say, I did my homework. I researched this stuff. I asked questions. I got with Peter. I got with John Mark. I got with the people that walked and talked with Jesus. And I asked them questions. I peppered them with it. That's what's implied. I did my homework. He says that. What you are about to read, he says, is the fruit of my research. And it's also the fruit of inspiration as the Holy Spirit guides him. It's a pivotal piece of literature. And that's why agnostics and atheists and even just literature classes have to acknowledge it because it's a pivotal piece of literature for the most published book in the world. Even if you don't believe in the resurrected Christ, you've got to uh, at least know its content because it is the most published and until recently highly read. The problem is now... People see contradictions between how they're doing church polity, how they're living their own personal lives, and so uh, they would go less to the book of Acts. It just, it's, a, it's a contrast. It's a friction. You see, this is the only apostolic book that we have of that period. It's, we don't have other options. It's a vital link or bridge between the Gospels, which are the story of Christ, and the letters that will follow. It's a vital thing. It is the backdrop material. It tells you all the background material so that when you turn to the letters, you can understand Peter and Paul and James and the other New Testament writings. If you don't have the book of Acts, if you don't know the book of Acts, if you skip the book of Acts, you will understand less the epistles that follow. It's a perfect pattern. And I'm going to come back to emphasize to you this because we are in our own fellowship growing more and more accustomed to dismissing the restoration plea, the restoration movement, which began in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s in our, in our fellowship. The restoration plea is we've got to go back to the beginning. And young people, you need to understand that's what we're based on. That's essential. It's vital. We've got to go back to the beginning. Because there are hundreds of denominational options. And the only way to sort through, to have, find clarity in that mess do you have friends that attend denominational churches? How do you sort it out? You sort it out. The only way we can do it is if we go back to the beginning, the restoration plea. But there are people within our movement that are confusing the restoration plea, minimizing it, scrambling it. And when they do that, what they do first is they've got to get rid of the book of Acts somehow, some way. They've got to pick, pick at it, do bits and pieces of it. And you can't. And the more that we know this book, the more we can say, hey, that's not right. That's, that's not good. It may tickle my ears and it may sound right, but if I'm going to restore, if I'm going to cut through the confusion of denominationalism, then I've got to go back to the beginning. None of the New Testament books have titles. So this one could be called 
as the translators did, the book of Acts, or it would be called Acts of the Holy Spirit, because one thing that is very clear throughout all the narration of Luke is that woven like a piece of cloth, the whole story, the whole narrative, every name, every city is woven through and held together by the presence of the Holy Spirit and by the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So it could be called that. It could be also called some of the Acts of some of the Apostles, because Luke doesn't have time in 28 chapters to get everything, so he's very selective. And he leaves a lot of people out. And that's why only three of the apostles will remain in the rest of the book of Acts. After you have the list of the apostles in Acts chapter 1. But you won't hear of any of the rest. Only Peter, James, and John will be mentioned in the rest of the book of Acts. Not because they don't matter, but because he doesn't have time. It's a fascinating narrative, the book of Acts is a story that needs to be told when our children are small, when our children are in elementary and junior high, and we adults should have it ingrained in us. I keep mentioning Luke as the writer, but do we know that? Well, we don't have 100% surety, but we have a lot of evidence, like, for example, what's called external evidence as to who wrote this marvelous book. It is external evidence. There are two, a couple of uh, external sources. One's called the Muratorian Canon. Muratori was an Italian that found this document, and so his name is given to it. It's from the 170s after Christ, and it lists Luke as the writer of the book of Acts. That's about a century after Luke lived. So you say, well, he could have gotten it wrong. That's true. But then we have a church father by the name of Eusebius in his ecclesiastical history. And he, when he writes the first church history in 325, he also says, and to our knowledge, the book of Acts is written, was written by Luke. He is writing two and a half centuries after the life of Luke, but still. There is internal evidence, like, for example, inside the text itself. Three times in the book of Acts, you will know if you teach the class, and it's done often here at Dalreda, and I'm happy for that. The we passages are moments in the text when the writer, without shining the spotlight on themselves, simply joins the travel, joins the narrative, and they're called we passages. And that means that whoever wrote this thing was actually a companion of Paul on his missionary trips. And as we look at all the news, information that we have, then we start focusing on, yes, the name would be Luke. We know what Luke did. He wasn't a writer. He didn't get an English degree. He was a medical doctor. He went to one of the Greek medical schools somewhere. He was probably a Gentile. Wonder who converted him. He was intelligent. He was bright. He was well-educated. And he's a great writer. He's a great storyteller. Story in the sense of truth. Story in the sense of history. He's not in the entertainment business. You see, he's in the medicine business for living. But for spiritual, eternal living. This is his masterpiece. It's called the Gospel of Luke and, of course, the book of Acts. When was it written? The story was written, uh, well, probably in the year that the book of Acts ends. That's my best bet, although you will find scholars that give you three or four dates. I will tell you, I think they can all be surmised within one decade, about the 60s. So when Nero is the emperor of Rome, kind of like we would say, and Clinton or Reagan or Obama were president in those years, that's when it happened. Well, it happened probably during the reign of 
Claudius Aquinas Barbus, or better known as Nero. He committed suicide in the year 67, and I say good riddance what I know of him. The emperors that will follow, the Flavians, will begin in the 70s. It could be that it's later than that, but I don't think so. I think the book of Acts was written in 62 or 63 because the book of Acts stops. The curtains close abruptly in chapter 28, and uh, uh, that's in the year 62. So I think Luke stops when he can't tell the story, the real story, anymore. (laughs) So as you see three options on the screen, I'm going to suggest to you that it... It is probably written by Luke up until the day that he's in. And then he stops because this is not a story that's made up. It's a story that's real. So 62 is probably the best date. This is the guy that was probably living and in charge of the world at the time when he wrote it. This is one of the many sculptures that we had of one of the worst uh, politicians and emperors in the history of the world. Nero is his name. A young, unbearded man that came to power at the age of 16 and uh, it was the year 54. In that year, Paul was in his second missionary journey. The biblical narrative takes place in really atrocious times. As you see what this man does in his palace and beyond in the years that will follow, late 50s and early 60s, you realize, wow, we may despair sometimes about the time we're living, things that are happening, tragedies that happen. But, uh, boy... The times that we call the apostolic times, the times of the book of Acts, the first 30 years of the church, wow. (laughs) The obstacles they had, the battles they had to fight, the the, uh, hearts that they had to win. That makes uh, our lot pale, to be honest with you, if you look at what the real setting was in this case. To whom was it written? It was supposedly written to one man. His name is Theophilus. What you see here is a column down below that I found in the city of Corinth, and I'm pointing with my hand to the fact that it's a real name. Theophilos is in Greek a combination of God-lover. It means God-lover as a name. But that was a name that was used in the Gentile uh, world as a real name. And it's probably an aristocratic Roman, to be honest with you. Can't know for sure. But in both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he says, and he calls him most excellent, which is a title. It's like saying sir, like giving respect to a very um, aristocratic person. Was it written for one man? Yes and no, I think. It was intended for you and I to have too, as we have it. But it began as a, well, it was for him and then for all who would read it. And it had probably many purposes. Not just one. It was to present a history so that people couldn't make up stuff. And yet people do anyway. It was written because already in the time of Luke, the apostolic times, there were people that were spreading lies and falsehoods about Christians and how, what they believe and who they are. And so Luke, to set the record straight, writes to a noble Roman to say, we are not a threat to your politics. Ideally, we are the best citizens of any nation. It is to present the real history of who we are and where we came from, not hiding anything. It is to give a defense, what you might call an apology, but not apology in the sense I'm sorry, but apology in the sense of here's where I stand. If this is wrong, then let me be found guilty. But you need to know who I really am as a follower of the way of Jesus of Nazareth. 
It was written to provide a guide for those that would come in the decades to follow when persecution would get worse. And it was written as a guide for you, young person of the 21st century. It is relevant. It is valuable. It is needed as a guide still today. It was written to depict the amazing story of early Christianity as a, as a triumph from the beginning. How on earth did a few uneducated fishermen and tax collectors do that? Why didn't they just crumble under the weight of that, uh, that responsibility that Jesus gave them when he said, I want you to take this to the ends of the earth? Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. I think it's written also to vindicate a hero that probably had fallen recently or will fall soon. Paul of Tarsus, fallen to the sword of Rome in the year 64-65. If the book of Acts was written after 64-65, that's possibly one of the reasons that it was written as well. In the reading that uh, Taylor shared with us, he read from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and it's there. In the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. No, you don't need to know about uh, restoring the kingdom of Israel, which is the question they asked him. You need to take what I've taught you for the last three years, and you need to take it from Jerusalem to Samaria to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. That's where you need to go. And that means Greece, and it means Chile, and it means Peru, and it means means Montgomery, and it means everywhere, to the end of the earth. And Luke will let those words sink in, and then he will write a story in a marvelous three-section pattern. So he shows you how the gospel truly went from Jerusalem to Samaria and surroundings to Rome, which was the center of the earth. And at the same time, to them, it was like the end of the earth. It seemed like so far away. Chapter 1 through 7 is the gospel in Jerusalem and the growth of the Jerusalem church. Chapters 8 through 12 are how the gospel starts spreading through Philip and many others to Samaria and Judea. And then the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul are the ones that lead us all the way to Rome. I'm only going to walk through very quickly in three minutes, four minutes. Because I'm about out of time. 28 chapters. Chapter 1 starts with the ascension. And there are 120 scared people there. Not much more than that. There's somebody missing at the table. His name is Judas. 12 is important as a number because there were 12 tribes of Israel. So Judas is replaced and then we can begin. By the way, the apostles will be killed and will die off in the decades to come. And they don't need to be replaced anymore. We only need 12 at the beginning of the story. Chapter 2 is probably the most quoted chapter in the the recent history of the Church of Christ because we've had to debate and tell denominations why we do what we do. And we've had to return to chapter 2, verse 38, and the issue of baptism has come up because it's there everywhere throughout the book of Acts. And that's why I believe in baptism for salvation of sins because it's there everywhere. No exception. It's not something that we added on. It's something that was there at the beginning. And that's why we must say, it's not my thing. It's not a Church of Christ thing. It's an Acts chapter 2 thing. It's there. In the year 30, the church was born. 
It did not happen in a corner of Jerusalem. It happened in broad daylight in the porticos of the house of God in Jerusalem. But by the way, the house of God is now everywhere you want him to be. He no longer lives just in Jerusalem. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 are wonderful stories of Peter and John and, and prayer and healing. And then you start seeing the beginning of opposition of the Jewish leadership who thought that they had cut off the head of the snake when they killed Jesus. But then he came back. And then this movement came back. And they're more bold than ever. And they, they start saying, you have been with, with Jesus, haven't you? You have walked and talked with Jesus, haven't you? You can tell by the peace, by the assurance, by the love of the people that you're talking to. These must be those followers of Christ. The followers of the way of Jesus of Nazareth. The church starts growing. There are examples of good generosity. See Barnabas. There are examples of not very good generosity. That would be called Ananias and Sapphira. You see, the early church has its issues too, has its crises, has its bad examples. And those are spotlighted as well. It's all taking place in Jerusalem. Here is a model of Jerusalem. There's the temple, 150 feet up in the air, above any household there. That's where it's taking place. And the followers of the way are growing from 120 to thousands. And they are, don't have a church building. They don't meet in a building. They're meeting outdoors. They're meeting in church homes. That's where it's all happening. Chapter 6, the first crisis. Whether intentionally or not, widows are overlooked. And it becomes a... A critical discrimination issue. And immediately the apostles take care of it. And it's put to rest. The value of good leadership is seen there. The apostles are the right people. Jesus chose them because they were the right people. Chapter 7. Stephen. He's a hero. He dies for the faith. That we know of he's the first. He's not going to be the last. But he gives an amazing speech of courage. And that's the theme of our Wednesday nights. The courage of the first Christians. That is recorded in the book of Acts. It's meant for us to get that kind of courage as well. Chapter 8, we're introduced to the scary young man called Saul, who is absolutely one from whom early Christians ran because he arrested families and separated mothers from their children and he puts people to death because he thinks he's right, but he's wrong. And he will find that out in the next chapter. But we are also told that the gospel starts spreading because of persecution. Philip goes to Samaria. The eunuch takes the gospel to parts of Africa called Ethiopia, down by the Nile River. And that's part of the narrative too. Chapter 9, God can touch even the heart of the number one most arch enemy of the gospel. The gospel can touch even those hearts. Don't ever despair. And so after three days of blindness, Saul, who we will call Paul, becomes... A quarterback for the right team this time, instead of a uh, linebacker for the wrong team. Chapter 10, it's Cornelius. The apostles know intellectually that the gospel is for all, but Peter needs a shove, so God gives it to him through visions. And you have the amazing living room scene in Acts chapter 10, and you have the event of the... uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit upon Gentiles and then they are baptized kind of a a reverse situation and it is there for God to say the gospel is for all the gospel is for all I said it I meant it (laughs) and so they're going to get it and you and I surely understand that much 
Chapter 11, the Jerusalem church gets a report on what happened in uh, the living room of, of, uh, of that uh, house in Caesarea, and they start reacting to persecution. Starts, the first apostle is beheaded in chapter 12. Bad guys will still exist even in our time, and some will be persecuted and die for the faith. Yes, God allowed a bad guy called Herod Agrippa to take the life of the first apostle, James. But that said, he also spares Peter in that same chapter. Chapter 13 and 14 is the first missionary journey. We have the beginning of the explosive expansion. Chapter 15 is the story of an incredible meeting because some meetings matter. Some meetings have an outcome that will determine the rest of time. We need to know how, when to be there and, and when to speak up and when to stand up and say the right thing as, for example... James does on this particular meeting recorded in Acts chapter 15. Look at the map of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas and the island of Cyprus is evangelized and there are congregations established in Salamis and in Paphos and in Perga and Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and uh, and Derbe. These will be congregations that he will write to later, the Apostle Paul, probably the letter of Galatians as you know it. Chapter 16, 17, and 18 is where Paul having caught the bug of mission work, takes off again. He's barely been back, and he gets another companion, Silas, and he takes off and into northern Greece, Macedonia, and then into lower Greece, Achaia, and Corinth, and Athens, and Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea, and, and there are the list of more congregations that are established. The third missionary journey is recorded in 1920 and 21, and there you see that Ephesus the church in Ephesus, and probably all the churches that are in the book of Revelation, Laodicea, Pergamum, Thyatira, all those are there too. And that's done in the years that go from about 52 to 57. What an amazing decade 47 to 57 was. Wow! What an amazing 10 years of the expansion of the gospel. It's recorded there. These are the maps. These represent real people in real cities in congregations of the Lord Church that started the expansion. They're not just maps. They're the story of our ancestors. They're not just Paul's second missionary journey or Paul's third missionary journey. He would say, take my name off that map. It's God's missionary journey. It wasn't my first and it wasn't my second. It wasn't my third. It was my 15th and my 16th. Why do you call it first and second? We'll have to explain that to him when we get to heaven. We did it for convenience. <laughs> It was about people. It was always about people. It should always be about people. Chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. The spotlight is in the Apostle Paul because I think Lou loved Paul. He had admiration for him. And it is the story of his arrest, his transfer to Caesarea, his encounter with Roman governors, his intersection with King Herod, Jewish a royalty, and he is the one that comes out as being the one that is the luckiest man of all, even though he has chains, and he's going to spend four and a half years chained, although innocent. <laughs> he says, I'm the lucky one. That's the story you'll find there. And then the last two chapters, that incredible journey to, to Rome of Paul, Luke, and another brother in Christ of yours and mine called Aristarchus, who's in trouble with the law too for some reason. And we are at the ends of the earth. We're at the center 
of the earth. There's Rome. From Jerusalem to Rome. The treasure within. The book of Acts. Wow. What a story. It's a story of 30 years. The most amazing 30 years ever. Roman emperors thought they were determining history because they had political power. They weren't. God was determining history. All along, it wasn't an emperor in Rome or a Jewish king that was running the strings. It was God through 12 uneducated fishermen and tax collectors. And since that story happened, the world has not been the same. Why tell the story? Lest we forget. These are the stories of our ancestors in the faith. These are our roots. These, this is who we are. And we need a pattern to do it right in our time, in our century. And we find in the book of Acts commands how to do it. We find examples of how to do it. And we find necessary inferences. We see how they acted and we imply by that how we should act in our day, in our time. The book of Acts is relevant. It's not just an old, musty piece of furniture that doesn't have any value. It has immense value. And you and I need to shine it, spotlight it in the foyer of our hearts, in the foyer of our homes. The book of Acts is where we are. The book of Acts is where we need to be. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses... Surrounding us, says the writer of Hebrews, such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and let us run with endurance the race that sets before us. So it's time to run. It's time to pick up the baton passed on to us by the early church. And it's time to run. Well, the lesson is yours. Turn open to the uh, invitation song that's been chosen, please. Have you been to Jesus? Number 904. Is that right, Micah? Okay. If you've been to Jesus, but you've dropped the baton, it's time to pick it up. It's time to run. If you're not in Christ, it'd be a tragedy to find out that the story was real when it's too late. We beg you. Come to Jesus tonight. Would you come as we